Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, so we'll get this thing started off for tonight. Um, hi, everybody. I am Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. Uh, we're really excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season now. If you've made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you'll know it's a very free-flowing conversation and we tend to have a lot of fun. Tonight, like I said, we have Cedric McLeod with us. We're very excited. He's the executive director with Canadian Forage and Grassland Association. So you'll hear us refer to that as CFGA. Uh, Cedric has been a rotational grazer since 1996 and was part of the original grazing mentorship program with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. So you guys will probably hear a lot more about the current um, grazing mentorship program that's happening between Steve and the team at CFGA. And there's a lot of people on board with that one. So, and he currently runs 440 acres in New Brunswick, but I'm going to let him do more talking about his own farm. First though, if we want to go to Steve, do you want to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic, which is water systems? All right. Thanks, Amber. Yeah. Excited to have Cedric here. He's the grand poobah of uh, CFGA first. We are going to be talking a little bit about the off-calf funding, obviously, and about water systems uh, because the off-calf funding will actually help you buy some water systems. So it's a good combination for tonight. I've been working with um, my company's Greener Pastures Ranching. We've been doing a custom grazing operation uh, for 20, 25 years now. We've done a lot of water systems. I think I added up over the years that I've set up over a hundred different water sites, uh, just on my property alone, not to mention all the ones that I've consulted on. So I've seen a lot of different water systems and sites and what works, what doesn't, what sometimes works, what sometimes does some of the, some of the mistakes I've made and, uh, some of the successes I've had. So I'd be happy to share that with anybody who wants to ask some questions tonight. And, uh, we've got Cedric here. who's done a lot of, of different things with water systems as well. So, and he's, uh, you know, got a lot of ins- insight on the uh, funding to go with that for for the CFGA program. So I'm excited to have Cedric on here. Take her away, Cedric. Well, thanks, Steve. Certainly a pleasure to to be to be invited, and uh, great to spend an hour or so with you guys tonight. So we're at the 72 participants. So yeah, 1996. So I uh, first year of university. Uh, sustainable ag course talked about the need for grass management and soil conservation and I was actually in uh, pre-vet my, my hope I, cause I always loved working with animals but I found this love for soils and so I changed my major to soil science and finished that up with a focus on soil conservation and and uh, went home that after that first year and and broke up the the, the family pasture into five paddocks and that since became 20 and, and, and I never looked back. So that's why I say I've been rotationally grazing since 1996. Uh, did my master's work at University of Manitoba, uh, working on um, carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas management out there in the black soil zone of, of Manitoba. Developed a very deep, deep love for the prairies and prairie agriculture. And so really pleased now to be, to be able to work in we'll, with folks like Steve and 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 Amber across the country to to advance grazing and 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 forage management in general, another big part of what we do at the, at the CFGA is is to try and support you know sustainable uh, and 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 efficient stored forage production to to support our grazing. So, yeah, run uh, forty cow herd down here uh, in New Brunswick, 
It's part of the original grazing mentorship program. Taught a bunch of us how to how to get this grazing thing done. And and uh, so Jim Stone, actually, I guess some of you probably were educated, took uh, courses from Jim at, at Olds College. He came down here and taught us how to tie steel wire and 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 all the rest of it. And yeah, a bunch of a uh, bunch of solar water systems down in this part kind of happened into into solar with with water systems that dried up and and cattle access to places they shouldn't have been and and uh and a long narrow farm that i didn't have hydro on so went to well i think it was 2007 we installed a one kilowatt solar array and that pumps out of 185 foot well so that thing is has worked pretty seamlessly for us for uh well since 2007 so a lot of faith in that solar and and uh we've certainly been through some of the trials and tribulations not so much with the technology but with service and and uh so the importance of, of having somebody close to to service your systems has become something that's pretty ingrained in it so happy to take questions um i was thinking mark when manitoba beef and forge initiatives when they when that turned over from the manitoba zero to a research farm and they started grazing. Uh, I happened to show up there for a visit one day and they didn't have anybody to drive the tractor. So I laid the water pipe there because there was no one else to do it. So near and dear to my heart, Manitoba, again, as a, as a U of M grad. So uh, happy to be with you to talk about this. Excellent. Cedric, I was going to say your, your solar system. I'm, I'm thinking back the first solar system I bought, a solar water system, I believe it was in about 2001 2000 that pump is still working it's still running i still got the solar panels for it i still the pump is we've fixed it a few times there's some uh, mariette screwed in the top and the wiring got changed but the pump itself is still running from way back then so pretty happy with the the solar system the first one i bought and it was very simple back then if something went wrong with your solar system you checked the fuse that was it it was a battery the wires the float a fuse and the pump. That was it. There was no uh, battery or uh, charge controller. There was no modules. There was no relay valves. Uh, it was pretty simple back then. So, could you just go into maybe some of the different systems that we have here at Greener Pastures Ranching and talk a little bit about the different systems you've worked with? And then, Cedric, if you want to talk a little bit about some of the different systems you've seen out there and stuff, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, we've got lots of different sites here, different systems, whatever works for the, the, the piece of land, right? You don't necessarily have to use the same one all the time. Uh, my absolute favorite one, and we'll talk about summer systems first, because then we could switch into winter systems too here today. Uh, my favorite summer system by far is a gravity flow. If I can find a spot where I've got some water and a little bit of a, uh, you know, a higher, you know, mid midway down the slope, boy, if I could do a gravity flow to a trough somewhere, those are my favorite. Um, I've set quite a few of those up. I can uh, plan it. Most people dig a dugout or build a dam at the bottom of the hill. I like to do that partway up the hill. So then I can gravity flow out of them. And I've had some of them running for 10 years straight. They freeze up during the winter. I did nothing to it. They just thaw out in the spring and they, they keep running. Uh, I think because there's no, the ends aren't closed and I use high density pipe for them. Uh, they just freeze thaw out in the spring and, and they're running again. So those have been my favorite by far. Uh, a lot of my systems end up being a, actually a gas powered pump or a generator with a pump that goes to a big storage tank that gravity flows somewhere. 
That's probably my second most reliable system. Once it's set up, I know I, you know, I can fill that tank and I've got three days worth of water. So that's probably my next favorite one. The, I'm moving more towards the generator than the gas powered pump because then the generator is useful for something else. When the gas powered pump, right, there's two parts to it. There's an engine and then there's a pump. If one of those fails, the whole thing I got to throw out or, you know, I take it in to get it fixed and they say, well, it'll be $700 to fix it and I can buy a new one for 500. So if I buy a generator with a sump pump, then it's both of them are use, useful. If one breaks, well, the other part's still working. And then I've got a generator in many different places to be able to do other things too. So I also have uh, quite a few solar systems. They are very convenient not quite as reliable as the other ones. Uh, there's times when they, they go down, uh, connections get a little bit corroded and all of a sudden, you know, it's been working great all summer. And then August, all of a sudden you got no water. So I definitely would still like to have enough volume with that solar system so that I can survive a couple days with it. And the other trick that I've had now too, I added it to the system is a, a trail cam that can take a picture of my water system that sends it back to my phone. So that's handy, especially on those solar systems that I'm, I mean, they work great for the first few years, but once they get a little older and the connections get a little weaker, then you can de definitely have some issues with it. But so I've got quite a few solars. They're very convenient. They work when they work, they're really good in the, in the long term. you got bigger herds. Sometimes they, they fail on me. Uh, what else we got? Uh, Did turkeys. You the rock pickers? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't say the rock pickers, but that's my solar systems. I've got a, yeah, I've got a fleet of solar powered rock pickers. If anybody wants to look at them, they are, uh, or, and, and all of these water systems, actually they're on our greener pastures ranching page. And if you go to photos and then go to albums and find water systems in the albums, I think there's like 70 or 80 pictures in there. I've got pictures and full descriptions of all the watering systems there too. And then there's uh, three different rock pickers that I've set up over the years with solar systems. So basically it's the old style rock picker. Uh, it's on wheels. You can easily move it around. It's got a nice low trough to it. It's about 150 gallons. So it's not a very big trough, but it, uh, it works well with smaller herds. Uh, as soon as I get bigger herds, then I, I need a bigger uh, storage capacity. So I'd rather you know, use a solar power uh, system to pump to a big tank and then you gravity flow somewhere to a trough out of there. So I think that's getting close. I've got gravity flow. Yeah. Cedric, you got anything to add? Yeah. So my very first system, like Steve said, it was a little old trailer that we had and I put a panel on it, built a little box, had a little charge controller, no, no gadgets, no gadgets, no volt uh, display, nothing. And, and just had a little, little built pump and, and away it went. And, so my farm is really long and narrow. And so this was way at the back of the farm. We had this set up and we, when we first got going, we just, we, we built a slip down into the water and we all know what, what kind of effect that has uh, before long. So I uh, put this little pump in and, and, and never looked back. But when I, when I, we really started to, uh, to move cattle across the farm and, and so the herd grew and we put up more fences and, and and really move to a full grass uh based production model we direct market our, our grass-fed beef under the local valley beef.ca brand i need to get to the front of the farm and so at the time the guy that i bought the farm from he had a was still living at the front and there was an old well in the old barn so we said can we tap into that and he said yeah well the cows knocked the float out of the bowl 
And it was, lo and behold, a shallow well and drained the water out and his wife couldn't have a shower to go to work and he was mad. So we just came and cut the pipe. Didn't bother calling anybody, say, let's get something and just cut the pipe. So I said, well, this isn't going to work. So I just called the well drillers and I said, boys, come and drill drill me a well. And I was working with a guy doing solar at the time. And that's where we put up. So yeah, uh, four panels, put up the the whole, the whole shoot and match on a little shack, moved my solar fencer into there. And it really, uh, really blossomed from there. What we did find, I thought I had it covered and I did because it was the highest point on the farm, long and narrow. So I said, I'm going to gravity flow from that point all the way out to, to service my individual paddock. So it's about 85 acres and we've got now we've got 22 paddocks on on that on that piece. What happened? What we found out was there was a secondary hill over the way, but there wasn't enough head to get it over that hill. So we ended up getting an old steel tower, and we put our our storage tank at the top of the tower. So the well pump easily pumps to that and keeps that full. So now we've got a hundred gallon reservoir at all times. Plus, I run a battery backup system. So I've got redundancy built in, in in two places. Plus, I run 100 gallon stock tanks along this gravity flow system. So, when I put that power in and gave myself that extra, I think it's 12 or 14 feet of elevation, it effectively allowed me to, to gravity flow from one point on the farm to the other. And I only have one, uh, one central pumping system. So, that really simplified my life and because we run we're long and narrow we got an alleyway that goes down the middle the the, the water line goes right down to the alley i basically have got infinite placement of my water bowls so that's worked really slick yeah it's a little infrastructure up front uh but i think steve probably backed me up on this a little bit of investment in infrastructure up front uh that'll stand the test of time will go a long ways to supporting uh, maintenance free uh, grazing and water systems over time. So, like I said, the, probably the biggest challenge I have as we've gotten bigger, we're pumping more water, we're running more risk. We've increased the complexity of our uh, of our controller to try and maximize the the output of our solar panels. Uh, so we've increased the 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 functionality of our charge controller. And I tried to do it locally with some guys that had some idea about DC. Uh, but my world really turned around when I built a relationship with Jason at Second Source uh, Power, who specializes in off-grid systems, uh, and started to buy my components through him as opposed to trying to Frankenstein things together. Because when the system goes down, and the cows are thirsty, and I can't figure out that functionality. I need to have that risk management blow off valve, and that is Jason. So that serviceability becomes really important. And I think that's where, you know, it's really exciting to see some of the groups out west that start to build those trailers, you know, turnkey units that, that come with service, uh, sales service and support. I think those are those are pretty fantastic systems. Excellent. Um, I did forget to two other systems that I was going to mention. We've used quite a, a couple of turkeys nests, uh, very similar to a uh, a storage tank, but we basically, beside a dugout, there's a pile of clay. So you can hollow out the pile of clay and put 
plastic in it and use it as a storage area. So basically a, it's an elevated water storage. And then from there, we do a gravity flow out to wherever we need to, right? We can go quite a ways if we've got some, some elevation. So I've, I've, I've uh, used a, a few different turkeys nests, a little bit of a problem there when the, the silage plastic, you know, after four or five years, it gets some holes in it and it starts to leak. If I was to ever do them again, I'd like to dig them in on top of a hill in some solid clay, right? Where it's solid, where I wouldn't have to worry about the silage plastic. So, um, and the other one, uh, Etienne actually reminded me of it here in, in chat. So some of our landowners have wells, but we don't have very good wells in our, our environment here that, you know, they're low, low uh, gallons per minute. And the same problem that Cedric just talked about is uh, if, if the household there runs out of water, if the wife's in the shower and she runs out of water, boy, the cattle get cut off of water pretty quick. So what I've developed is storage tanks that can slowly fill from the well 24 seven. So there's just a small uh, float valve on there that's slowly filling that tank. And then when the animals come to drink, you know, in the, you know, mid midday, then they take from the storage tank, not from the well. And that way we save our uh, uh, human resource or our relationship with our landowner because we're not uh, running them out of water in the middle of the day. So uh, that's an important thing to, to think about too, is that uh, human resource component. Cool. We have a lot of questions rolling in already. I think these guys are going to keep you busy tonight, Cedric and Steve. First up, we have Tyler Barry. Are you ready to go there, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Thanks, Amber. Okay. Uh, I was just curious if you guys had any experience with some of those nose waters at all, especially for a smaller amount of, of head. You know, one of the things I heard you say just with the gravity is simplicity is key, right? And I, I thought, you know, a system like that to put a number of them around you know, if there's a, a good balance there, or if that's something you've had any experience with. Oh, I haven't. Um, and I've tended to, most of the systems I've dealt with have been kind of offsite. So I try to build in a bit of that redundancy, like say with, with the batteries and, and a little bit of storage. I think those nose pumps, Steve, jump in you're probably got more experience with that, but you've really got to have a really solid water source without a lot of head, I don't think. Um, to, to make them work, but, but I, but I certainly have heard that guys do make them work. Yeah. I've been to a lot of places that have used them and some guys really like them and some guys don't like them at all. Uh, every time I've kind of looked into it, it it's for, for the cost of them and the number of head that they, that they water for me to do, uh, here's an example. I've got 1100 acre pasture. I'm bringing in 600 yearlings brand new every year. There's 13 water sites on it, right? For me to do that many head with nose pumps in 13 water sites, well, I'm going to say four of those water sites are already wells, so I'm not going to change that. Uh, but just the cost goes through the roof, right? I can do it for a lot cheaper, uh, that many head, but gas powered pump, a storage tank, and a big trough, uh, a lot cheaper. So some people love them. Some people don't. Uh, I know you can use them as a uh, winter water site as well, out of a wet well, and then no power, no nothing. So they they pump their own water uh, out of the wet well. Uh, so that could be an option for a you know energy free winter system as well. But no, I haven't had a lot of experience with them. Uh, I see somebody has one for sale in the chat. If you're uh, up for it, that's great. Thanks, guys. You bet. Well. And I, and I think your, your experience is playing out here because Brian's got his for sale and, and Yvonne says she really likes her. So um, right, right next door. So yeah, all, all different, all different comers. Next we have Scott Gillespie. Are you ready to go, Scott? 
Yep. This is kind of a little bit of a personal question, but kind of what I want to know for um, for just general general knowledge on this. Um, PVC piping as to whether you can run kind of temp like really quick temporary ones if you're not quite sure if you want to do something, whether that like just running them on the surface, whether that's feasible. The ulterior reason for asking this is because I've tried PVC piping on my own property for just trying to have rain barrels in a better place than um, where they are just for watering. And I find that the PVC pipes tends to warp and move around when it gets hot. So just wondering if, if that's even a possibility. So so I don't bury any of my pipe out here, Scott. Um, that okay. I've, I've run it. Run it all on the top of the ground, and 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 I, I like that because it, you know, it's easy for me to monitor, and uh, just never thought, ne- never felt I needed to, to to go through the extra step of putting it in the ground. Also, out on the east coast here, we tend to be quite rocky and, and glacial till, plain soil, so you know we're also dealing with rocks to to trench to trench those in. Now, one thing I do note that doesn't take long uh, for the grass to, to cover up and your and your pipe becomes buried. So I've never had that problem with overheating and and warping. Um, I run my my pipe down the edge of the alleyway so there's always kind of that, that thicker grass under the under the fence. So I've never dealt with the warping issue. So that that would probably yeah so in a in a in a field scale that would probably solve that problem of that heating during the day because I, I, I had it out and it's, yes, it's amazing how much it changes or how much the heat, the the sun can heat it up and just warp a great idea around. So, yeah. Okay. Okay, So I'm, I'm wondering about what's the difference between ABS pipe or PVC pipe, right? You're, you're talking a plastic pipe. Those are pretty brittle, are they not compared to a poly pipe? Yeah, I guess Cedric, what what kind of pipe is it you use then? Yeah, I'm using poly, I guess. So we're not using that using that PVC. So yeah, we I run a I run a one inch poly, pretty standard stuff from we get it from Home Hard. Well, actually, I get it from my well driller, so it's got the thicker wall product. The stuff we usually get from Home Hardware tends to be a, a thinner thinner product, but I've never had any trouble with that. So if you go to that poly, you're probably not. That's probably going to alleviate your problem even further. Steve, what's the type that we have at the Heifer Pasture Project? Because that stuff is... Poly pipe. That's poly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. So, Scott, the pipe that you're using, the reason it's flexing and changing with the heat is like that pipe I wouldn't use. I mean, that's the stuff you put under your sewer systems. You glue it all together, right? Yeah. Um, I'd be using poly pipe, uh, much stronger that, you know, it's... You you roll it out and it's a, I've had stuff out for 20 years above ground, never had a problem. The one thing with the CFJ off-calf program is we're allowing the funding to allow above ground piping because we know uh, you're going to put that into rented land. You might lose the rented land. You want to be able to take your pipe out. Um, so we're trying to encourage that. That's one of the, the differences in our program is that we're, we're covering above ground piping, but yeah, I definitely would use poly pipe. Yeah. Ver- you mean versus that RDAR program or yeah. Cause that's, we've been having kind of a, a side chat going on with this, this, how deep you have to go or what that kind of stuff is. Cause there are some funny rules in the, in the off calf program, depending on who you have. 
Yeah. Could we actually quickly just run over? Cause I know that that's kind of what's going to come up in discussion a fair bit is with Offcalf. Would you guys just mind doing a really basic overview of what this is so that people kind of know and we're all on the same page? Yeah, we can do that for sure. So CFJ was one of the, one of the recipients of the on-farm climate action fund dollars from Ottawa, which is geared towards incentivizing uh, BMPs that either increase soil carbon sequestration or reduce nitrous oxide emissions. CFG is a little bit unique in that we're only delivering one BMP, and that's the grazing management uh, component. Uh, We are operating in Quebec, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Further unique, um, there's other delivery agents offering the same funding program in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC were the only delivery agent on grazing in Quebec. So that's where there's there's some of this back and forth on the ARDAR program versus the CFGA program in Alberta, because we we've taken a different approach to to some of these some of these components. So our our project consists of four buckets in the grazing management space. So the first off, you can get funding to develop a grazing management plan. So we do have some some standards we're trying to to adhere to with minimizing the second bite. Uh, If you've been with Steve long enough, you've heard that second bite concept. Um, So we want to make sure that the fundamentals of of grazing management and grass regeneration are being respected in in the plan uh, and in the projects that we're funding. So that's why we're funding the grazing management plan. Second thing, uh, interior cross fencing, right? to manage animal movement and and support uh, grazing period and rest period. So that we get maximum rejuvenation of the grass stand. Of course, above ground biomass, below ground biomass gives us carbon sequestration. Third component is water systems. We recognize right off the hop that if we're gonna start to break up our pastures and control animal movement to support grass rest, then we need to be able to have a functional water system that backstops it so the cattle aren't walking too far uh, for water and or bunching themselves up and uh, in, in that search for water, therefore creating uh, an, an, an overgrazing uh, situation. The fourth component of our program, um, we have made exterior fences eligible if it is part of your grazing, uh, your grazing plan and with a specific focus on moving grazing into an integration with annual cropland. As we know that those annual croplands, as, as, as we start to speak to the regen principles, you know, I think it's the, the fifth pillar, fourth, fifth pillar, having livestock on, on the land in association with annual crops, those exterior fences become pretty important to reintegrate livestock there. So those are the four uh, components of the CFGA off-calf program. And oh, and the and the other component, I guess I should mention, we do fund um, increased quality of pastures, and that largely comes down to uh, reintroducing legumes into the board. So that's another eligible uh, component of our program. So I've been kind of traveling all over the country trying to promote the mentorship program, and and now in some of the off calf program here too. And the big differences I see between the programs in comparison to some of the other groups that are doing it. Uh, So we fund 70% of your materials that you're going to. So for a fence, for the water system, for seeding, we're funding 70%. On top of that, we're also funding the in-kind labor and equipment cost. 
for you to put that system in. Right. So that really, really changes the whole game. All of a sudden we're paying your time and your equipment to actually put in the fence, put in the water system. So that's a big difference between any of the other programs uh, all across Canada, as far as I, I, I've seen. Uh, the other one is we are doing above ground pipelines. Uh, I haven't seen heard of any of the other programs doing above above ground pipelines. And with an approved grazing plan, we're also doing those perimeter fences. So those are the big differences. I mean, Cedric just ran through all the things that we do, but those are the big ones that I see as, as the differences that make, um, you know, that I really like about it. Paying, paying your labor, that's an amazing one, right? We're, we're trying to show you that this is really important and, and your time out there is, is worth it to put all this stuff in. So we're going to help cover that. So in some cases, you can come out actually cash flow positive in this. Um, so it's a really, really good deal. It's really hard to to say no. And there's what I've been saying is that uh, I'm I'm holding on to seventy five thousand dollars of your carbon tax dollar. Do you want it? <laughs> Come get it. It's all yours. I want to give it back to you. So by all means, this is a, a pretty good program. I've never seen one uh, this good, this easy to get. So uh, yeah, it's a great program. Sorry, Scott. I just figured they better do a little update on Offcap first, because otherwise, we're, if we're going to go into that part of the conversation, we should have so that, everyone on the same page. No, that no, that's good because yeah, we've we've still continued having a little bit of this conversation, but yeah, this Offcap program is is a really is a really um, confusing thing until you kind of get to know it. But if everybody, if you just think of it as Offcap, is it's the federal money, and then they, I think they have twelve or something different organizations that that deliver it so in alberta ardar does it for the whole province but as definitely the the grazing program through cfga is much is a much better program than going through the ardar program but it's just it's um you just gotta so you kind of gotta either sift through it yourself or find somebody who has sifted through it to try to figure out what's the best one for your your farm. So it's yeah, Scott, you're from it's, Alberta. It's a, gov- it's a government program and it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's not simple. Yeah. You're from Alberta, right? Scott. Yeah. I'm yeah. From Tabor. So, okay, so I so, do more, I do more of the cover crop and the nitrogen ones, but. So I guess we should explain that a little bit too. So the different organizations, there's three components to this, right? Grazing is one of the components. Cover cropping is another component. And then nitrogen management is the third component. So Scott's for everybody that's not in Alberta, Scott's referring to Ardar. They also have all, they have all three components. And so they are also doing the grazing one. The difference between, you know, a a big difference between the Ardar one and CFGAs, Ardar actually covers 85% of the materials, right? We only cover 70 but we also include the labor and equipment cost. So if you're just buying assets, right? A water system, you might be better off to go through RDAR because right. you get 85% of it. But if you're doing fencing, well, then it's your, all the fencing materials <laughs> plus all the labor and equipment costs, you might be better off to go through CFGA. So yes, it's very confusing because there's so many different groups that, you know, we all have our own rules and our own, we, we made it up separately. So uh, there's not much continuity between them so yeah you got to do your homework and find out the best spot to go uh, uh get your funding from yeah and i think and i think um like this coming year 2023 is the the last year of the program so this is the time to use it don't don't think it's it's going to disappear fast so we might as well get as much as we can out of it 
So we'll get back into water systems if that's okay. Yes. <laughs> it yeah. was good to good to definitely get everyone. And there will be a lot of questions, I'm sure, about off gaff and stuff. And I'm I'm sure the guys will be happy to answer those. Um, but we have a long list of questions coming up. So I had a private message here. Uh, they don't have a mic. Their question is, would the advantages of storage tank, what would be the advantages of storage tank on a pressure system? I will be needing to pump uphill and then down a mile solar powered. So I've got one of those situations where I, I uh, keep a small tank secondary on the top of a hill. Having that storage out there is at for redundancy is just really easy risk management, especially you know, in in your in your pressurized system, um, certainly, right there they they are really uh, the, the cast pajamas and 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 a great system. But if anything goes down and you lose that power and you lose that pressure, even if it's for a half a day or a day, and you don't have some other storage, then you're automatically out of water, right? So having you know that 12, 24 hour buffer uh, of supply there to help you walk through you know whatever challenge a tree falls on a line somewhere who knows um it's it's the risk management factor that that i really appreciate about having like say i use battery storage and physical water storage as two um two pieces or or redundancy factors to to manage what happens if if my solar system goes down yeah agreed uh my first thought when the heard that question is stress right uh, livestock stress when they run out of water, that's going to cause some issues and uh, people stress when you run out of water, right? Trying to fix it. The animals are out of water and all of a sudden you, you start the pump up again and they're fighting over the trough and they're kicking things and breaking troughs. And uh, it just, it's stress. The more volume you can have, the better. I mean, we had a question in the review here a couple of weeks ago about, well, do they need a trough that big or do, why do they need a storage tank that big? And I'm like, nope, bigger, the better. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll approve anything as much storage as you can get. I, I'll try and improve it because that just lowers the stress on everybody and, and all the animals as well. So you bet. Thanks guys. Uh, we have Tyler Jordan up next. Are you ready to go? Yep. I'm ready. Perfect. So I guess my question is, is do you ever change your water systems um, based on whether or not they're on, you know, rent or lease property versus something you own? Like, uh, you know, a problem that we run into is just how do you set up a system? Like if there's no, if all you have to work with is just perhaps a low volume well and, you know, you don't have a pond or a dugout to work with. And I'm sorry, just trying to get an idea what that system is like. And if you don't really have a real secure rental agreement either, like how temporary it is, et cetera. Yeah, I think some of the some of those turnkey systems, Tyler, that are available are are you know pretty slick, already set up on trailers and, and roll. But um my first system was a trailer that that I dug out of the woods and um built a little box on top of it and mounted my solar my solar panels. I could take it anywhere. But if you're talking about like how shallow a well are you talking? You know, like sometimes like it could be a drilled well, which could be quite deep, could be 300 feet, but you know, sometimes a, a shallow dug well might only be, you know, 25 or 30 feet. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just hard to invest, you know, putting a pond in a property that might, that you don't know, you know, we've got ponds in our property, but as far as, you know, branching out and trying to graze in other areas that are not, 
they're either like a rental agreement or a lease agreement. So. Yeah, and I think there's a pretty big difference there between a 30 foot shallow and a, and a 300. Like if you're going to put in a 300, you're going to have to have a boom truck in to, to pull that submersible. But if you've got a 30 foot well, you're going to be able to put a submersible in itself. And I would think that you would probably be better served, Tyler, to to get a big, get a thousand gallon poly tank as that you can move, right? You've got that. That's now on your balance sheet. And whatever happens, you can up and take that wherever you go, as opposed to investing in infrastructure on something else. It's you know your your thought process is is going on. And uh and really if you invest in those in in those flexible movable systems um without putting in physical infrastructure, even on land that you own, to Steve's point, he's moving stuff all over the place, having that flexibility, that becomes key to, to, to your grazing management plan. Cause as, as you know, things change and being able to flex and move and not have to manage around a physical infrastructure that you've installed and now having the debt service, probably it's a lot easier to have it, be able to pick it up and move. Yeah. Tyler, I've got a lot of rented land. Obviously that's been a challenge for me all the way through most of the wells that I you know, come, come across, there's already a house there and a pressure system. Now it's a human resource thing, right? Trying to deal with, oh, can we use your well? Uh, and then trying to figure out how to not stress out the household because, you know, like I said before, fill in that big tank slowly so that it doesn't stress out the, uh, or, or put stress on the, on the well itself. Uh, again, like Cedric said, where, where can you best spend your money in that situation, right? Every piece of land is different portable portable systems the the problem with the portable systems i found though is they take a lot of labor right if i'm moving one system from this piece to that piece to that piece all the time my labor starts to add up and that's my my biggest expense is labor so what i've done is over the over the years as i've you know got a little bit more cash flow going and you know got another site developed and another property that's making some profit i try to put in more permanent water sites but by permanent, I can still take them out, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tank sitting there with a solar system and a solar panel that everything stays there. But if I ever lose the land, it's all removable. Okay, so I'm still got temporary equipment that is permanent. And that reduces my labor over the, over the course of a day or a week or a month, because now I've got more permanent structures that I don't have to move on a you know, weekly basis type of thing. So uh, same with fencing. Uh, water systems, the more I can put in permanent, it lowers my labor in the long run. So it ends up being worth it. So. Okay. Thank you, Steve and Cedric. That's great. Awesome. And next up we have Sheldon Atwood. It's been a little bit since we've talked to you, Sheldon. Yeah. Sorry. I just, uh, Steve, I know you guys are both involved. So I'm trying, I'm wrestling with the idea of why the off-cap funding is not funding it any of the uh, pipelines that go deeper than 15 inches and what the mentality behind that is. Were you part of those discussions, either of you, Cedric or Steve? No, and I think Steve's probably going to be more familiar maybe with the RDAR program, but Sheldon, we we didn't worry about getting the pipeline in the ground. And, and I think I understand the thought process is that if you trench it in, it's there and it stays there. The approach that we took at CFGA was that we wanted to offer that flexibility, right? So if you needed to move a water system, and some people do quite routinely, right? And really some, you know, the poly pipe is, is a small 
piece of the overall budget, right? So we trusted folks that when they gave us their grazing plan and they said, I need 3,000 feet of poly pipe, here's where my paddocks are going to be laid out. We trusted that that's what they were going to do because that was the plan that they were offered. So we don't require it to be trenched in, but there are some folks that are that are doing that and, and we will fund that that as well. But in terms of the, the overall depth, uh, how far it's going in, Steve, I don't know if you got anything there, if it comes back from PFRA days, recommendations or something like that, I, I can't speak to that. Yeah, I, I have no issues with how deep you want to put it. I mean, we've approved projects that they've buried it deeper. Right. We've got some projects that have come in there. They're trenching out a line for a winter watering site and that's buried eight feet deep and we'll cover that. So we don't have that restriction in our off calf program. So I'm not sure where that's coming from. Okay. Yeah. That was our dark. So you're saying CFDA wouldn't. So I can talk to you about yeah, Cause the surface line low. Right. And I completely agree. You said your surface lines are fantastic. They're like, mobile corral panels right i'm never going to build another permanent corral ever right like you can change it you can adapt you can like it's so wonderful right so your surface lines are the same way right? yeah i'm using two inch uh, hdp dr17 because i'm covering a lot of miles and a lot of cows but I can move it around, I can tee it off, I can fuse it in, I can do all of anything I want in terms of getting water to where I want to have cows with those surface lines. But in our area, I'm only golden for four, four and a half months a year with that system. If I bury it 16 inches or less, I add a month on either end of that, maybe, you know, three, four weeks for sure. But uh if I want, if I don't go deep, then I don't have the ability to manage my herd during the dormant season the way I really want to, right? And so it's really, really important, I think, for long-term plan for some of your permanent stuff that when you own the land, Tyler, <laughs> and when you know that you're making an investment in a completely different way to manage if you can put volume of water, just like Steve said, right? You've got to have enough water at the place wherever you're going to run the size herd you want. And so we link a bunch of low volume wells together into that pipeline and then push it over there, right? And to Cedric's point, the stress of having a, a storage reserve is it's so nice, but it's really hard to have a winter storage reserve Thank God your uh, animal requirements go down so far. <laughs> it kind of makes up for that, right? Anyway, we did get rejected on our RDAR application for a pipeline that we put in because somebody had this random 15-inch maximum depth of a pipeline. And it's the same pipe that used to sit on the surface that I spent my own money to bury. But now they won't cover they won't cost share in the pipe. If I left it on the surface, they would cost share in it. But once I bury it over 15 inches deep, they took it off the table. And so I'm glad to hear CFDA isn't doing that. And you'll probably see a partial application because I'm already approved for some of the funds on the other materials. But can we do that, I guess, is a question. I can split once I've... Uh, taking some money from our dirt, but they're not going to fund uh, 
they're not going to fund the rest of my project because I buried it too deep. So when did you buy the system and the, the pipe and when did you bury it? This sum, past summer? Yeah, so I got the pipe last summer and buried it during the fall. Okay, so retroactive for CFGA's program. We will go back to April 1st of 2022. Uh, if you have any receipts after that, the labor for that, the, the, the kicker for that right now is we're coming up to the deadline for retroactives. You have to have your application in by February 15th. Oh, great. Okay, but we'll, it'll also cover 70% of your labor and equipment costs. Yeah, no, no problem. That's all contractor at this point, but it is a pretty healthy amount of pipe that went in the ground, right? I did about seven miles this year, so. Yeah, jump on it, Sheldon. There's yeah. lots of money left for 2022. I'm really glad that you had this topic, even though it's, uh, it's only going to give me two weeks to get it together, but <laughs> it's a meaningful deal anyway. But the point for everybody is water systems, I think, and you've made this point on past podcasts. Water systems drive your ability to utilize the land way more than just about anything else. Like what's between your ears and where you can put water are the two most important things. Excellent. Thanks, Sheldon. Cedric, did you have any comments on that? Yeah, I was just going to mention, Sheldon, um, it is really important that if you are receiving money from RDAR and you want to come and make an application to CFGA, the land parcels where that funding is deployed needs to be different. You can't access for the same BMP on the same parcel of land from both groups, right? So if you've got a north pasture and a south pasture and you put the RDAR money on the north pasture, just make sure that our, your application to us is on the south pasture. That's a good point. We, going back to the nose pump question, we have a question. Can calves get water from a nose pump? Not much of a nose pump person. Uh, if they learn from mom, maybe. Uh, so I don't really know the answer to that one. You'd have to ask someone who's using them. Can the calves pump? I think there was a couple of people there. Why don't you just throw it into chat and see if someone comes up with an answer to that one? I see Cedric nodding too. Um, and then Penny, you're up next. Sure, John's going to ask the question. You betcha. Good, good evening there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm from northern Saskatchewan up in north of Lloydminster. Um, I'm not really, really very, there, there ain't much wells around here. There's a lot of sloughs, a lot of dugouts. Um, the sloughs are quite shallow. What should I, like, I have to rig up a solar pump. What should I use for solar pump? Pumping uphill. And what should I add into the suction so it doesn't plug off? Yeah, so Steve, I think probably the easiest way to do some of those where you, you don't really want your suction to get down into the profiles, just have a floating, uh, just a, a floating intake that, that your pipe goes out away from the shore. Probably the easiest way to do that. And if you're, if you're designing a system and you've got to deal with some head uh, overcoming some head to get the water up to a storage or whatever it is, I would really recommend working with a supplier that has some experience in that. So, I mean, the, you know, moving water uphill is one of the oldest engineering trades from what I've been told by engineers. And there's lots of tables out there to get it done, but having somebody that can help you run that math 
and then they may have uh, a very easy commercial solution to doing that. Uh, one thing I did, I built a float and put a put a little submersible in. I took four PVC elbows and glued them together so it made a square, uh, nice and airtight, and I mounted my submersible pump right in the middle of it, and it draws out of that, and, and I put that into a pond. It always stays on the surface, just below the surface, so it's it's pretty pretty easy about that. Now, now also, um, there, there's roughly about 80 acres in this chunk, and it goes uphill every direction. So you're saying just go to a supplier and ask him what type of pump should be the best to push uphill from, from that slough or dugout or whatever. Well, that's probably my best bet then. Okay. Well, my, my, well, my first thought would be, depending on what your grazing system looks like for design, you may want to mm -hmm. have various points. Like if it's an 80 acre block and you're, and you're wetland or slough yeah. in the middle, right? Like you may want to be able to move around that slough um, so that you can manage animal impact, right? Especially if it's coming down right. a hill, right? It's going to be a wet area there. So working with a mentor um, up in your area, Lloyd, I think Kelly uh, Sinorski is our, is, our, is our mentor up in that area, yeah. be able to help out with some of that. That was going to be my first suggestion is we've got uh, funding to get a mentor up there to help you. And you've got probably between the two of them, couple of the best you know really good mentors we have is uh, blue set campbell that's at meadow lake and yeah. kelly sadoric that's at lloydminster so the program that they'll cover will cover 85 percent of their costs to get them up there and and help you figure out a plan and then they might say you know this pump is the best one here that one there it depends on the situation they do have solar pumps that can do pressure right they're a little bit more costly but they can do a pressure system out of it and then you can pump quite a ways and, and uphill through that pressure system. So yeah, I would advise get a mentor out there and look at it first because just, you know, randomly saying, yeah, use a, use a floating pump. Um, we, we haven't yeah. seen the situation, but yeah, get a mentor out there. Hey, thank you very much, gentlemen and ladies. Good stuff. Uh, next up we have Boyd. Are you ready to go Boyd? Uh, Stephen Cedric, how are you guys dealing with algae buildup in your holding tanks? Or are you having issue with that at all? So I only have one holding tank, and every couple of years I I bring it down and 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 get it moved out. It doesn't tend; it is white, but it doesn't tend to get a lot of algae buildup um, because the turnover is pretty good. Where I do get buildup is in my stock troughs. And what I end up doing uh, is pulling them out of the line every once in a while, take them into the shop, give them a pressure wash, uh, and putting them back. In the yeah, I, I do get a little bit of algae buildup as well. Uh, my trick for that is uh, because I have multiple water sites, so multiple tanks, and all of a sudden they'll get, they won't be used for a while. Right? While they're in use, there's lots of water going into them. I mean, you know, four or 500 head drinking off of them. There's a lot of water going through them. But then I stop. Cause I moved to another quarter and that one just sits there. So the key to that for me is I drain them. I let them go empty. Then they sit. Uh, I have heard a lot of people talking about if algae is a problem with those white tanks, uh, paint them black, right? Then the sun can't get to them and then the algae doesn't build up. So that's, uh, you know, a trick I might be doing in the near future is starting to paint them black. Some of my tanks actually are steel. They're solid. So I don't have any buildup in those at all because they're, they're completely covered. So um, yeah, it's the sun in there that's allowing the algae to grow. So if you can block out the sun, then you don't have as much issue with that. 
Steve, do you have an issue with putting the uh, apple cider vinegar in? Like, do you find it builds up more or less? I've tried that a few times. I don't know if it works. <laughs> I don't think I've done the experiment enough because I just, when, when I leave, I drain the tanks and, and the, it's usually not a problem after that. There was a couple of them that I tried that in and I, I didn't do it enough to see if it actually worked. I might need to be an experiment we work on a little harder. Right on. Thank you, guys. Great stuff. Next up, we have Adam Courtney. Are you ready to go, Adam? I am. Yeah, my main question for you guys was, uh, for those of you that are running permanent water systems, uh, we've had really good luck with the Apex-type uh, float valve in the summer, but in the wintertime, they've been a little more problematic once they've iced up or if you're leaving them for the winter and you come back to turn one on, they seem to hold water and you've got to completely throw up you know, thaw that valve out before you can use it. Um, do you guys have preferences for float valves for summer and separate preferences for wintertime tanks? Yeah, I've used the I've used the Gallagher floats for years and and they've worked quite nicely for me. But I found as they get older uh, and they deteriorate a little bit, they're they're a little less reliable. And I've had floats let go, and it's a bit of a pain in the butt. I actually found these little guys down at the World Dairy Expo. Job, J-O-B-E. I love these valves. They are very, very hardy, rigid. I uh, got this one nice float, hangs out well in the water tank. So I really like this one. And then for winter, um, I actually use an SPI uh, frost-free uh, water with, with an eight-foot earth tube underneath of it. So that waters the cattle all winter. doesn't require a valve. Um, but it's so it's triggered on on the solar. So I know Steve's got a lot more experience in that, but I think a lot of yours, Steve, are are continuous flow for the winter. Yeah. So float valves, good topic. Uh, we've had lots of them over the years. Most of my summer systems. I'll talk about summer systems first. Most of my summer systems are gravity flow of some kind. I might pump to a tank, and then it gravity flows to the trough, or it's gravity flow out of a a water body of some kind. So with gravity flow, what I've found is any of the purchased valves are too slow, right? They end up under gravity. They end up coming out, you know, like the back of a toilet bowl. It's just trickling in and my cattle can drink it way faster than it can fill. So many, many years ago, I started making my own float valves for gravity. Uh, I just basically take a, a inch and a half steel fitting, uh, an elbow with a, with a uh, pipe in it. And then I weld on a gate hinge and on the gate hinge, I mount a half a rubber ball. So it'll seat itself right inside that uh, elbow and then put a float on it. So it's a homemade float valve, but when it opens up, it's an inch and a half of water coming out, right? It's filling fast. And then as it fills up, it'll, it'll seal off that, that uh, half a rubber ball seats itself right inside there. So it seals really well. Now under a pressure system that doesn't work because it's too much and it'll, it'll, it won't close. So then you have to go to a purchased one. And, and I've heard lots of people talk about that uh, job valve to Cedric, that it's uh, pretty good. I haven't actually had one, but most of mine are gravity flow. So I don't, uh, I think I've got plenty of uh, valves already that didn't work for gravity flow that I've got plenty I can use for when I do get to a pressure system. So winter time, my favorite water system in the winter doesn't require a uh, float valve at all because it's uh, snow. 
no float valve required. <laughs> I really like having wintertime using snow on just about any chance I can, if as long as I've got decent snow, because then my manure and urine gets spread out nicely. Okay, some of the one of the worst environmental things I ever did was had a water site by a dugout all winter for four and a half months. And in the springtime, oh my gosh, all that manure and urine washed into that dugout and destroyed an ecosystem. And if I didn't use that water system, if I was out licking snow, which I very well could have been that year, but because we were right beside the highway, we had to have a, you know, a water system in sight so that people could see it. But yeah, we actually destroyed an ecosystem because of that. If they would have been out on that grain land, like we were on a, a grain field that year, uh, all that manure and urine would have been spread out nicely across that field. So that's my favorite. If I have to use a winter water system, yeah, I like the continuous flow where I don't need a float valve for that. Other than that, I've used, I've got a couple of wet wells and I'll use a solar system out of the wet well with a motion sensor. Now we were trying to set up a motion sensor here a week or so ago, and I think it might be broken because we couldn't get it to work. So I might have to buy a new motion sensor, but um, the wet well with the solar motion sensor works really well too for that. So we will be having wanna... a video on the wet well coming up pretty soon here. Yeah. And if anybody wants to see any of those again on my Facebook page in the water systems albums, I got pictures and descriptions of all those. Cool. Barbara, you're up next. I see you're ready to go there. I don't know whether there's any restriction in Alberta on drawing water for stock out of a lake that you don't, that isn't, your property doesn't come. There's public land around this lake that I have in mind. Is this an issue? I guess I'll take that one, Cedric, uh, in Alberta. I'm not sure on the rules on that. I'm not uh, up, up to date on that. But as far as I know, water is a public thing. Uh, years ago, maybe this has changed from now. I'm not sure. So don't quote me on this. But I remember telling the, uh, I was told that the water in any dugout is actually public. You have uh, priorities. So number one priority out of that water body goes to human consumption if they need it. So if it's going to a household, they have first priority. Second priority would go to uh, livestock. So technically, as far as I know, if there's a dugout across the road, I have the right to, to pump some water out of it. Now you're going to have to do a lot of human resources there to not make enemies out of, out of neighbors. Right. So <laughs> technically I think you go through the right channels, talk to the right people. If you need some water, as long as there's not a priority above you, right. If they're using it for their household, um, then you should have rights to it, but we obviously got to be careful with our human resources out of that too. So, uh, and I'm sure every other province has a different rule on it. And, and maybe this one's old news. Cause this was like 20 years ago when I had this issue. My second question relates to winter uh, watering, and you're basically saying it's snow, but what if you don't have snow? Yeah, always have a plan B. <laughs> okay, so plan B this year, we're out bale grazing right now. They're licking snow. Uh, we installed a wet well just to make sure in this location we had it. It's not running. It's there. Uh, we, we tried to get it running just to make sure because we thought um, a week ago, all of a sudden we had plus six weather. And the snow just dropped. So then all of a sudden, they're not going to have good snow to lick anymore. So we went out to get it going. And that night, we got another little skiff of snow. So they were good. And now I hear we got some more. I'm not there right now, but I hear we got another uh, little dump in the snow yet last night. So they're good to go for another couple of weeks anyway. And that being said, about a mile and a half away, we do have a water bowl access to. 
they'd have to walk a ways to get it, but uh, there's a backup plan. Next, we have a question in chat. What tank or trough size per cow on slow fill systems? Also permanent and or temporary aprons around tanks. What do you recommend, especially in spring mud? Wow, that's a bundle. Um, the only thing I would say, maybe two things to Barb, uh, keep in mind that any regulatory requirements for moving water out of a water course, it is your responsibility to understand what those regulations are, right? That's number two to Steve's point, yes, risk management. And, and I think that's really this question as well is risk management. So I think having that slow, that slow trickle will oftentimes result in animal stress. And if you don't have enough access to the water, in, case, in some cases, the, the weaker units in the herd won't get water at all if the herd is, is coming in, in a mob to water. So it becomes really important to have that, that, that storage factor. And so I've had this case too, some of my further out water sites on my gravity flow system, it, it trickles like, like Steve was talking about, even with the job, right? Just the, the, the pressure that comes out at the end of the line, it's low. So what I end up doing is making sure that I've got a stock tank that's always filled from that. Uh, and then if it needs to service locally, then it, it, it will run hard. And, and so you've got that physical water storage where you can use a bigger valve like this that'll dump one inch of water out really quickly. Those trickle systems are, in, in my experience, pretty dangerous and have always seemed to have the potential to create a lot of animal stress. So I would say get a bigger pipe if you can, get some more flow and put in some uh, put in some intermittent storage along the line if that's the way it needs to go so that it can trickle fill all the time. And then when the stock trough calls for water, you can have a big line coming off that that fills the stock trough. I've always said you need a three-day supply, right? Not that I always have a three-day supply, but that's what I've said. Get as much as you can. It just saves on the stress, right? If you can get that tank, it's three days of supply. If that system goes down and you don't show up for two days, they're not out of water. Right. You show up and I'm like, oh, hey, the tank's, you know, only a third full. I better fix this. So I don't have a, you know, gallons per cow strategy on that, but depends on the size of the herd. You know, do you have three days worth of supply there or is it only a day? Um, I don't, you know, I would try and get a bigger tank or, or add another tank to it. Uh, the Gateway Research Organization, Heifer Pasture. We set up a gravity flow system to two troughs to help uh, design the new uh, Xperia, the demo that we're doing out there. And we used a 1,200 pound or a 1,200 gallon tank. And after the first, uh, you know, half of summer, we're like, you know what, we need to add another tank because you can't get through a long weekend without going up there and pumping. Uh, so, yeah, the, the plan is to add another 1,200 gallon tank to give more reserve so it can last longer. Awesome. Next up, we have Lynn Powell. I am going to post the Gateway Research Organization YouTube channel in chat. Um, there's a lot of videos on there and a couple, I think two or three that are about the Heifer Pasture Project, which is another really interesting project happening at Grow. So Lynn, are you ready? Okay. So my question was about the mentors and when are they likely to 
to be coming out or like would we come out because like my farm um i've said before but uh we moved in here in november and now it's under like two feet of snow the snow is up to my knees actually over my knees so i don't really see that like a mentor could be able to give as much information or as much help as i would want or would be really desirable because everything's under snow like i don't don't even know if there is watering points out in pasture at the moment so but then also i guess my other part of the question was i'm wanting to start my application but i'm like okay so i can't really do anything yet how would i start it when i, I don't have anything to do yet so I would say, Lynn, uh, the first step is 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 to try and get a bit of a plan put together, and and you know from yeah. from a landscape, you know overview, you can do that with with aerial photographs and and <clears throat> you know how how new it is. But I I would never probably shy away too hard from doing work in the winter and and getting some things down on paper and and trying to get an application if if you wanted to um, before the money gets run out. I think yeah, that's what I was concerned about. Is like I go on to get my application before the the money's gone because I really, really could use it. Steve, jump in. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely get the mentor out there. They can do a lot from the aerial photo and being there and looking across from the gravel road, seeing the hills and the trees or whatever. Right, they can do a lot from there. And if you put in your application and in may or april your mentor goes out there and says oh whoa you know what we need to change this we should do it this way if you've already applied for something just let us know right where your your application isn't written in stone we want to give you the money if you change it up and say you know what i'm instead of doing this this was my original plan i'm gonna do this uh, you know we're we're pretty flexible we're farmers we understand that uh we'll let her go like as long as it's you know not okay. drastically different uh we'll we'll uh we'll work with you Okay, well, I'm going <laughs> to try and get, I'm going to make my login anyway and try and get it started tonight and see what, how far I can get this week and have you got see an, what we do. Have you got an identified mentor in your, in your area, Lynn? I was at the workshop uh, like last week. So I've got an email for them. And they said that's who to contact to figure out who your mentor would be. I'm in Yorkton, so Yorkton, Saskatchewan. So that's my area. For anyone listening on podcast, we will be putting all this in the show notes. So look to the show notes for more information. Um, And Graham, we have you up next. Nice to see you again, Graham. Uh, Cedric and and Steve, I understand there's some nuances between each of your off-calf programs. But at the end of the day, the program was designed to to understand sequestration. So are any of your programs actually data gathering? So you've got a baseline and over a end of end of projects. So you're actually either seeing a change, worse change, better change in the south sequestration as a result of your improved grazing management through your water systems. I love this stuff. Carbon accounting. Let's get into the weeds, right? Uh, the short answer is no. So one thing that Ag Canada was very adamant on when um, when they built the program is that they were only going to fund BMPs that they thought they had good per acre coefficients in the bag on. So what our requirement has become is reporting the acres of BMP deployed by eco, eco region, B 
because they've got the co the carbon sequestration coefficient for the BMP for each one of those. So there is no baseline project condition in this. What I will say is that the living labs that are that are being rolled out currently, a lot of them are focusing on doing exactly that and understanding the rate of sequestration based on soil type, based on grazing intensity, based on, on rainfall received. And so longer term, I think we're going to see the results of those living labs starting to inform the coefficients that will be used in a program like off. Yeah, Graham, and I'm definitely pushing the carbon side of this. I mean, I'm out in Saskatchewan right now doing talks on this. And uh, as soon as we talk about the program, we you know, kind of tell them about the off-calf. And then I go right into carbon about how this is about carbon sequestration. Right. You show us how you're sequestering carbon. Right. We we talk about the graze period. We talk about the rest period. I want to make sure that second bite, you know, you stop that second bite because then those plants get into, you know, collecting more sunlight, pushing out more exudate and growing that soil. So I'm I'm really hammering that in this uh, this message out here, too, is is that's what this is all about, is about sequestering more carbon. My observation of tonight's discussion is gravity fed without using diesel or gas to pump ultimately impacts your total farm footprint rather than you know trying to pump water uphill yes engineers can do it but it's a whole lot cheaper if you get gravity to do it so you've got a design challenge and yes depending on where you are you might be uphill to everywhere um but the design function, you know, at the ranch where we're at, is it's easier to move water downhill with gravity than uphill with a pump. So I think that's that's a something you can consider, particularly if you're if you're being challenged with these types of uh, dollars. If you want to spend your own dollars, go ahead. Yes, but to keep in mind, ultimately you're dealing with the whole ranch footprint, and running generators everywhere to pump water doesn't really detract from your your footprint. Yeah, for sure. Graham, one of the things that I, you know, learned years and years ago, I had a, a system set up. It was a gas powered pump pumping to a tank that went to a trough typical, right? That's when I was new at this. And I remember reading a grade Greg Judy book way back when, and he talked about this gravity flow. I had never even heard of it before. And I remember walking out to a few pastures, then I'm looking around going, I wonder if I could do a gravity flow to here. And the one I remember distinctly, I said, you know what? All I have to do is move my water trough a hundred yards down and I could do a gravity flow to here. I'd had a pump system sitting there for at least seven years, I think. And, and a gravity flow would work. So the fact that a lot of people don't even know that that's an option they're told that, yeah, you got to buy a pump and you got to buy this. And you got some of these, sim these systems can be very simple and very inexpensive, right? That was a one inch line that I brought out of that dugout down a hundred, hundred yards down, added to the trough I already had. And I put a screen on the end of it, right? I mean, I needed a pump to get it started, but after that it ran for like 10 years straight with no pump, no nothing. So there's, there's a lot of people out there that don't even know that's an option. Cause when you go ask someone to the salesman, right, they're going to sell you a pump. They're going to sell you a generator. They're going to sell you whatever. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of options where gravity works and you don't even see it, right. You don't even think about it. I want to meet the gravity salesman, you know, the gravity pump salesman. 
You're looking at him right here. <laughs> Cedric, do you have any extra comments on that? Yeah, I think the one thing I would say to that is um, they were pretty explicit that um, gas-powered water pumping systems were not eligible. It had to be removed to be eligible for that. Cool. Good to know. Greg Van Leuven, you are up next. Maybe I'll read it. Okay, I'll read it. Hey, folks, what is the best bang for your buck for water tanks? Bigger, the better, they, so they say. Yeah, pretty easy. It's, uh, it's a buck, buck a liter down, down this part of the country. So, and I think that that goes down as, as the tanks get, get bigger. So, but we don't have a lot of used stuff around like you might out West. Uh, and I know Steve is, is a bit of a wizard on, on repurposing tanks. So I was going to say a buck a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm, I guess I'm not metric in Alberta. We're still not metric on a lot of things. I'm cheap. I don't like to pay full price for anything. So I'm the kind of guy that shops around and all of a sudden I'm watching Kijiji all the time. And all of a sudden you see a deal on something, uh, some old refurbished something or other. And yeah, I'm pretty cheap. I don't buy much, much stuff brand new. So I remember I got like a 3000 gallon tank for like 300 bucks or something. So, uh, yeah, I just shop around. I'll buy it in the middle of winter when there's no demand. That's when you look for stuff, when there's no demand for it. Don't be buying water tanks in the spring because everybody wants one. Buy it in the middle of winter when nobody uh, nobody's looking. Somebody's desperate to sell something. They need some cash for something. So, Okay. We actually have a whole bunch of questions about mentors in all different areas all across Canada right now. Is there a list somewhere, Cedric, that we could access so that we can put that in the show notes? Yeah, you bet. I'll uh, I'll pop it over. It's our grazing mentorship uh, landing page uh, over on the CFGA website. Uh, fill out the form. Uh, that comes in and, and we'll get you hooked up with, with someone locally. So we should probably let people know if you need to find them, uh, who are the leads in every province? We've got Erica in Alberta. We've got the BC Forge Council, uh, Serena in British Columbia. Adrian Hansen is in Saskatchewan and Bruno or Marie Pierre. Who's our Quebec? Yeah, it'd be the CQPF. So yeah, Bruno and Marie Pierre is working with us at CFJ to help coordinate. Okay. And then there's questions about Manitoba. Yeah, so there, there's there's a couple pieces there. So uh, you can contact Mary Jane or at the Manitoba Beef and Forge Initiatives Group. Uh, they're helping us to run our grazing mentorship program there. That's on the mentorship side. Now, actual off-calf implementation dollars in Manitoba is coming through the Manitoba Association of Watersheds. <laughs> there is a lot going on in chat, so just give me a second. Uh, for all those people that are listening to this on a podcast, you miss all the jokes and all the funny stuff that's happening in the chat right now. So sorry <laughs> about your luck. <laughs> so you gotta make sure that you get on. Cause I think we have time for one more question. If I can see. Oh, Lynn, you had a question as well. Are you ready to go by chance? Yes, but I don't remember what my question was. It was about soil was samples and carbon. Oh yes. That one. Um, I was wondering if, there's somewhere that we could send soil samples if we wanted to do that ourselves, like out of pocket, if it's not being covered by any programs. So 
Yeah, you can you can get those samples. And Graham uh, Gilchrist put a note in here. A and L will will do will do the sample for you. But given that you're in Saskatchewan, Lynn, I would encourage you to reach out to Mike Schellenberg, uh, who's leading the the uh, Living Labs project there with Sodcap. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, assessing carbon sequestration and your carbon stock is a little bit more complicated than just taking a core uh, and, yeah. and analyzing for carbon, right? So you need to have a bulk yeah. density sample. There's a calculation that goes along with carbon stock, right? Yeah. So certainly still something that can be done on farm, but that bulk density needs to be done kind of just so it's a little bit finicky right so that's that's where the guys at Sodcap and and mike is you know long time researcher at agriculture and agri-food canada so that's step one step two is measuring change and yeah right so if you're going to measure change over time you've got to be really precise in where you're sampling and the number of samples that you're taking in a unit area right mm-hmm. Because if you look at a, you know, a 10 by 10 foot grid, wherever you drop your core within that 10 by 10, 100 square feet, you could have drastically different carbon uh, content with, within that core, right? So yeah. To, that's that, and that's the challenge that we have to really accurately assess what we have for carbon stock, um, which is why we're working through the programs like these living labs i know the regen program in alberta the abp program alberta sodcap we're doing it down here in new brunswick Mm -hmm. everybody's working on the same piece to get as many samples as we can in a consistent fashion so they can go in a database so we can start to compare across yeah and i mean also you can't like just do this another sample within an inch because that hole from the sample will affect the surrounding soil so then there's that to take into effect as well. Right, right. So, yeah. Link, link there's with those there's guys. that balance of getting it close, but not too close. And and that's where, you know, back to Graham's uh, question about, you know, assessing what our carbon sequestration is from deploying these BMPs. The coefficients that I spoke of are based on long-term research, like meta-analysis of data that say, okay, if you're in the brown soil zone, of Saskatchewan versus dark brown versus black versus gray Louvasol, this is likely what your sequestration rate is going to be based on this long term. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, that's one of the things I, I really do want to be able to measure it because, I mean, I have people I'm friends with that are like, let's get rid of cattle. They are destroying the environment. You got to go completely. And like, how, how are we going to say, yes, we can sequester carbon without backing up with real scientific proof, right? So, I mean, I don't just want to like stick it to my friends, but, you know, for real, like in general with a lot of people, how do we, how are we going to prove to society at large that this is actually scientifically helping? The cool thing is that there's a lot of really, really good people working on exactly that all across the country right now. Um, Dr. Derek McKenzie is someone that we work with pretty closely, and he's working on a soil carbon mapping website type thing or soil health website that's going to be all across Canada. There's there's like 
a lot of different things happening. So there's, there's a lot of excitement around that. And you're exactly right. We do need data to show the average person that, Hey, cows actually aren't bad. <laughs> Lynn, the fact that the federal government just put $200 million into better management practices that are in the same line as what we're talking about, regenerative, <laughs> right? The fact that that happened, we have made some huge steps forward. Mm-hmm. They listen, they listen mm-hmm. to somebody, right? The universities are getting better. Yep. They've got lots of researchers who are, are gung-ho yep. behind this. Um, we are making huge strides and I'm really excited about where this is going. Uh, I mean, this off calf funding is just proof that we're making those strides. So yeah, well, we're, we're doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like even in the past five years, there's been such a big, huge difference. But thank you so much for answering my question. Cool. Uh, And we are over time already, guys. That went by really, really, really fast. So if we could just get some closing comments from Steve and Cedric, we'll maybe start with you, Steve, if you want some closing thoughts and maybe an encouragement. And then we'll go to you, Cedric. Okay. Thanks, Amber. I think what I want to do for my closing thoughts today is uh, answer or or clarify a few things that I said earlier that was uh, humming in chat there for a bit. Cattle licking snow. Uh, Yes, we do that a lot. Uh, Our cattle do quite fine on it. Definitely one of the comments in there was if they're with cow-calf pairs. uh, Yeah, I wouldn't do it with calves because they're milking. Uh, definitely uh, dry cows is what we do with or with uh, bred heifers and trained cattle, right? You don't just throw cattle out in the middle of the, you know, shut off their water and turn them out. You know, you got to wean them into it. Like I'd walk them away from a water bowl until they get to the point where they don't want to walk back anymore. I've had that. And once you get some trained cattle that are used to it, great. Uh, But then you also have to do observation, right? You got to watch your cattle. Are they stressed? Are they having troubles? Uh, Watch the quality of snow. Um, I mean, if the quality uh, just the other day here that uh, the temperature was was uh, warming up, which sinks the snow and all of a sudden it gets hard and crusty. It's no longer easy to lick. So then, oh, where's the backup plan? We got to we got to solve that. So, yes, it can work. I've used snow as a water source for many, many years. But you have to watch out, right? That you can you can get indirect that way. So so make sure you're uh, using your observation skills as well. So other than that, yeah, I. uh, Really uh, enjoyed tonight. I love talking about water systems. It's, uh, you know, one of the biggest parts of my job, I guess. So uh, thank you very much, Cedric, for jumping on board here and helping us with some off-calf information. And uh, glad to have you on here. Does that mean I get the last word? You get the last word. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm always really intrigued. um, And it seems to go this way. We, We started out talking about uh, infrastructure, some fences and some water systems and floats. And then when we started to talk about carbon, we went right into policy and, and, and science. Uh, well, it's just really exciting for me. I've worked in greenhouse gas science and, and extension for my entire career after I left University of Manitoba uh, grad school. So, you know, the fact that to Steve's point, we're seeing you know, a quarter of a billion dollars being invested uh, in in this practice is um, well, it really really warms the heart. And and I think there's a, there's a couple of pieces to go along with that. I think you know Lynn's comments around wanting to have you know your own farm data so you can communicate that with your neighbors. That's a valiant effort 
but it's also a challenging effort to to do your own stock. Now I see Graham has got a calculator dropped in in the chat. Encourage you to take a look at that. We could also Amber maybe we'll put in the the Canada Grassland Protocol that we developed through the CFGA um, that helps you to uh, you can actually trade carbon. Uh, on the Climate Action Reserve in, in out of California using this protocol in the voluntary market. It doesn't rely on measurement. It relies on coefficients. It relies on the science that has come before us. And I, I realize, you know, more, more science, yes, is good, but we've also done a pretty good job of pulling together the science that has come before. And that's what's led us to these coefficients as they exist today. So I think the opportunity here is, is onwards and upwards and is very excited that we're meeting this challenge. The entire globe is looking to agriculture for us to be doing this and we're further validating these things. Really encourage you guys to, you know, reach out to your, to your local living labs groups. Look if, you know, see if they're looking for, for site collaborators. Um, be part of that research and, and also be watching for opportunities to engage in, in some of that citizen science. Uh, that I think you're speaking to, Lynn. Just make sure that we're using those nationally accredited protocols for collecting those samples so that that data, that sample that you're taking is going into a larger database and we're all working together to refine these coefficients because that's the way we really drive the science forward. That's the way we really drive the policy forward. Um, we need to, to have collective models here and, and and, and get it done collectively. The last thing I'll say, and I know, you know, carbon is on the tip of, of everybody's tongue. Where we've, what we've looked at in our, through the Canada Grassland Protocol is, you know, likely sequestration rates is somewhere in the half to, we'll call it half a ton per acre per year in, in the brown soil zone of Saskatchewan. So based on what the carbon price you're looking at and what market you're gonna trade it in, you know, the dollar value per acre on carbon does tend to be quite low because we have to use conservativeness and build that in, into our pricing and, and carbon package value. Put that up against what a ton of high quality hay dry matter is worth right now. Probably to somewhere in the 250 to $300 per ton range, right? So capturing an extra fifth of a ton of dry matter per acre, which you can do with good grazing management practice or, you know, uh, increasing the alfalfa content of your hay stands, you know, you can really drive a lot of additional value through advancing the agronomics on the farm, which is going to help get that job done. The carbon is coming along, yes, intrinsically. And Lynn, you'll be able to speak to your neighbors about what you're doing there based on the science that we're doing. But the real dollars in your genes are going to come from advancing your, your grazing and forage production systems, either keeping more cows on, on fewer acres um, or, or, or vice versa. So I just want to leave you with, with that. I always come back to the agronomics for me and carbon is a bit of gravy on the fries. 
Well, that was fun. On behalf of Gateway Research Organization, we want to thank both Cedric and Steve for your time tonight. And anyone who wants some more information on Gateway Research Organization, you can check. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a fantastic YouTube channel, which I'll again put into the thing. I would love it if you guys would all subscribe. And that's what we have for you tonight. So now after networking, networking is about to start. 